The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. It's the podcast for a, uh, what day is it? Wednesday, uh, middle of the week, hump day. Uh, yours truly, Bob McCown, along with uh, John Shannon. If you're watching, our friend Buck Martinez is uh, with us, and we will uh, talk baseball, but I want to take a couple minutes off the top to uh, address the situation that had us all kind of glued to radio, television, um, word, what internet uh, yesterday. Tiger Woods in a, uh, an automobile accident just outside Los Angeles yesterday morning, shortly after 7 a.m. Uh, he was extricated from the car, taken to um, um, hospital. He had extensive surgery, um, and I do not, I, I, we don't know enough about the additional injuries he may or may not have suffered, so i got to be careful with what I say here. But as I understand it, the injuries are principally to his right leg. Mm-hmm. Um, multiple fractures, uh, pins and rods inserted in both his leg and his ankle. However, there is no indication of any extensive or serious injury to his left leg. That was the leg that he, you all will recall, the U.S. Open that he won, um, playing on literally on one leg. That injury uh, was to his left leg. Mm-hmm. And I, I just wanted to point out that he is extremely fortunate, as you can be, to be alive, but that the injury is to his right leg as opposed to his left with, perspe- with respect to his potential to play golf again. And I say this because I've gone through it. I had extensive knee surgery on my right leg, and um, it doesn't impact your your golf game, and principally because your weight transfer is only about 60 70%. The backswing for a right-handed player, and you literally land entirely, put all your weight on your left side. So um, I think there is some reason to be optimistic that assuming there are no additional problems that his back is okay um we may see him back on the golf course and and um you know we're all hopeful that that will be the case but more importantly the tiger yeah. is able to live a um, um as normal a life in the future as, as possible let's remember bob he already had back surgery last december he did uh, he was just recuperating from that and um i i read an interview yesterday that he talked about his master's victory in 2019 and did he view that as the greatest comeback in golf history? And he said, no, he viewed Ben Hogan's return from his car accident as the greatest comeback in history. Uh, And uh, there is some irony to that now. Now Hogan hit a bus and had to learn how to walk again and then came back and won a, a, a major tournament. Um, for Tiger to come back uh, from these injuries. Uh, and if anybody can, Woods is the ultimate fighter. If anybody can come back, it would be Woods. It uh, would truly be Hogan-esque if he could come back and, and play the game of golf uh, at an elite level again. 
Yeah, you the, jump in? The, yeah, the the interesting thing uh, in the Hogan accident was horrific, and uh, you know there are stories about him leaping in front of his wife, falling across the car in front of his wife to protect her, mm-hmm. which may have exacerbated his situation. But you know what? The the biggest thing, my first reaction was, oh gosh, I hope he's not taking pills or has any drinks. I mean, that was my first reaction because we've been down that road before with him. But the golf world certainly reached out to him. I mean, you saw athletes tweeting and everybody was kind of reaching out for him. And I think we all feel the same. This guy was uh, a standard in his sport that many athletes have never reached. But I'm not so concerned about him playing golf again. You know what? He's accomplished so much. Sure. And he's done so much. And you just hope he has a good life and he can be a good person, a good father to his kids and uh, just get on with things. But this is going to be a long recovery. A compound fracture of any nature is going to affect you as an athlete. And having had an ankle injury, that affects you as well. And yeah, you can live a normal life. But as far as, uh, you know, performing on a high level, I don't know if you'll ever be do that again. Well, we will find out, and probably not in the immediate future, uh, no, as you said. Well, if anybody gonna, knows about uh, coming back from catastrophic injuries, Bucks, <laughs> it would be you, sir. Well, um, I certainly wasn't as good as Tiger before the injury, so I couldn't come back to any standards like that. <laughs> well, you got the guy out at third, though, didn't you? <laughs> well, no, he slid into me at home. Yeah. No, but but you you continued to throw the ball. That's my. No, but yeah, my... he came back to home and. George yeah. Bell threw it back to me. That's the miracle of the whole play, that George Bell threw it close enough that I could catch it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. George Bell on line two, Buck. Yeah. Well, I've told him that many times. <laughs> uh, Buck Martinez is with us. Let's get on to baseball. So spring training has, uh, has arrived. Um, we know the Blue Jays will be in Dunedin for some extended period of time beyond spring training, and at least for the first couple of series of the regular season. Do you anticipate it will go significantly longer than that? Any thoughts? Uh, I hope not, Bob. I, I think everybody wants the Blue Jays back in Toronto, and we certainly want the border to open up, and we want the health situation to straighten out. But uh, I know the ballplayers want to be in Toronto. I know, uh, you know, even Springer and Simeon talk about going to Rogers Center when the people are there and how much fun it is, and it's a great atmosphere. And that's where the Blue Jays are supposed to be. Unfortunately, we can't be there right now, so the Blue Jays will open up series in Dunedin, and uh, it's going to be different. The playing surface in Dunedin at TD Park is really first class. I mean, it's as good as any major league field. It's a smaller park. Uh, ball's going to jump out of there. You just better really focus on pitching well, but it's no different than pitching in Milwaukee or Cincinnati or any small ballpark like that. It's kind of the same atmosphere, but Once you get into May and early June, it starts to rain down here and it rains just about every day. And that's 34 o'clock, right? (laughs) Every day. (laughs) So that's a concern, but hopefully they'll play a couple of home stands here in Dunedin and then make their way north, whether it's Buffalo or Toronto. I think that's uh, something we'll have to wait on. So you think Buffalo is still an option? What's that? Do you think Buffalo is still an option? I I think, John, I think it is um, just because of uh, they have to prepare for that should uh, the border remain closed. There's just no getting around it. And Mark Shapiro has addressed the fact and everybody says, well, what about Buffalo? What about the AAA team? He said, well, we won't uh, play two teams in the same ballpark. If we have to play in Buffalo, we will make accommodations for the AAA ball club to play in a 
AAA standard ballpark and uh, they will play somewhere else. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Live Boricua. Let's talk. You mentioned Springer and Semyon, the two most significant acquisitions by the club uh, during the uh, offseason, both position players. Um, give me a sense. You've been in this situation during your playing career when, um, when veteran players, accomplished players, come to a club that is principally occupied by young, aspiring talent. Do we make too much of the potential impact of the experienced guys coming over and being able to help? No, I don't think so. I was in a similar situation in May of 1981 when I was traded from Milwaukee, a veteran team, on the verge of going to the World Series in 82, to a team much like the Blue Jays team now. Young, loaded with talent, loaded with minor leaguers, homegrown talent. You know, we had Steve and Clancy and Leal and... Garcia and Fernandez and Barfield and Mosby and Bell. They were great players all over the diamond, but they were young players. So I was a veteran player that Pat Gillick brought me in to help uh, accelerate the situation as far as developing the pitching, whether it was helping Ernie Witt learn how to catch a little bit more or help a young pitching staff with Steve and Clancy and Lee Allen and all of those others. So yeah, it's not uh, unlike the opportunity. I had been to the playoffs in 76 and 77 with the Royals. So it was a situation where Pat Gillick had envisioned his ball club is going to be pretty good. And it was. So he started to bring in some veterans. And uh, yeah, you can have an impact. And you don't come in and, and tell them this is how we're going to do things. You just go about your business the way you have in the past. And that's what Springer and Simeon have already suggested they're doing. This is the way I do things. And hopefully, I will influence some of you younger guys to maybe step in line and follow me as to how I prepare and what I do for the games and then what I do to start uh, my career uh, for a regular season. So it's interesting and they've had a positive impact already. Um, I'm intrigued by the communication, the nature of the communication between the veteran player and the younger player. Is it more the younger player? Do you wait for the younger player to come to you or do you, do you, do you try and be a little bit proactive? No, I think you wait for the younger player to come to you. I mean, everybody knows who Springer is and everybody knows who Simeon is. Simeon hit 33 home runs a couple of years ago and Springer's been on the biggest stage of baseball and performing at a high level. So everybody knows who these guys are. And I think the one thing they have both done, they're both great guys, character guys, very bright guys. You know, they, uh, Springer went to UConn and, uh, Simeon went to Cal. So, you know, they, they've been educated. They've been around veteran players before. So they come in and they say, hey, I'm here for you. Whenever you need me, I'm here. And then kind of step back and wait for the young guys to come up to them and say, how do you take batting practice? How do you take ground balls? What do you look for in the outfield? All of those types of things. And then once you have that green light, then you're open to business and you can really establish yourself as uh, one of the leaders on this club. 
I'm Buck, the, uh, the the move of Simeon to second center uh, second base. How much of a issue is that for him, not for the everybody else, for him? Yeah, John, I talked to him about that specifically, and he said it's not that much of an issue because basically, and he made a great point about baseball in this day and age. He said most teams shift to begin with. So if I'm playing shortstop, I'm going to play a lot on the first base side of second with left-handed hitters up there. So I already know what that looks like. And another thing that's really important, that's not an issue anymore, you don't have to worry about a base runner breaking up a double play as a second baseman. Mm -hmm. You can't break up a double play. And Tony Fernandez always talked about the fact that that was the most challenging aspect of going from short to second was turning your back on the base runner. And that's not an issue anymore because the guys never come in to slide hard into second base. Uh, at the beginning of the off season, um, we, many people, thought that perhaps the Blue Jays' number one priority would be starting pitching. And um, there's no question they went out and got two guys that are significant additions and will help this team immensely. But I'm wondering whether you had any concerns about the limited changes the Blue Jays made in terms of the rotation specifically. Well, Bob, I think they still have pitching as their number one priority. And I think that's what it was going into the offseason. But things didn't work out. I don't think they were ever going to pay Trevor Brower price. Uh, and Trevor Bauer has had a very limited uh, short amount of success. And, yep. you know, I, I think he's going to be good. I don't think he's going to be Max Scherzer for the course of the deal. And I, I just don't know that, you know, James Paxson has uh, horrible medical history. I mean, as much as when he's healthy, he's great. We'd love to have him. He'd be a good teammate. But his history doesn't suggest that he's going to hold up. Uh, Jake Odorizzi is another guy that's been out there and he's uh, a guy that's evidently looking for a three-year contract. And I think the Blue Jays' concern with that is we know we've got Pearson here on the team this year, but they have Alex Manoa, Alec Manoa. They have Simeon Woods Richardson. They right. have Eric Fardino. They've got a lot of young, Kloffenstein, a lot of young guys that need a place to pitch in the next year or two. So if you sign a guy for three or four years, I mean, how much is that going to block your future? So, you know, I still think the Blue Jays are going to get another starting pitcher before opening day. I, I still think they're going to get somebody either by a trade or a late minute free agent, somebody to come in here and, and serve the role of a, a four or five starter in that rotation. And I think that's an issue that they need to address. Uh, two of the guys they um, um, brought in, well, Ross Stripling came in last year, but mm -hmm. uh, Tyler Chatwood's another one. Chatwood is, uh, well, both of them are interesting stories. Um, Chatwood is a guy who uh, has a live arm, lots of potential. They're now talking about him as maybe a six-out guy, a guy you bring in maybe in the sixth or seventh, the seventh and, or eighth potentially. Um, but he could theoretically be a starter at some point. What, what do you see? Where, where do you think he fits? Well, I, I think yeah, you characterize it. He's going to be a two-inning guy. I think he has moved past the starter mentality. I think he understands his stuff plays up a little bit. And he mentioned how he talked to Brandon Morrow when they were both in Chicago with the Cubs, and Morrow made the transition very effectively from a starter to a reliever. 
And I think Chatwood has uh, moved past the starting uh, aspirations and he needs now to focus on pitching out of the bullpen. And uh, Charlie Montoya has talked about it. He's going to stretch him out here in the spring and, and pitch him in two inning situations so he can serve that role, maybe come in in the fifth, pitch the fifth and sixth or the sixth and seventh and be a bridge guy. But uh, it's another good piece. And you're right, he's got good stuff. He's had success. He's pitched very well in a tough atmosphere in Colorado. So I think, um, you know, he comes in now. He had some issues last year. And he said, I was trying to please everybody and I wasn't pleasing myself. And he was pitching away from his strengths and he's going to pitch back to his strengths, according to what he told us recently. So as a catcher, a, a guy is a starting pitcher and he almost invariably has, well, three solid pitches, a fourth that he can use, maybe even a fifth. Mm-hmm. And so as a catcher, you want to go through that cycle and, and, and pick your pitches carefully. Relievers tend to be two pitch pitchers. Right. Um, but this is the, the stereotypical reliever. Now you're hoping to get one inning out of them. Uh, you know, three so, would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but I mean, this is the psychology of the game now. They, you know, the the game today is, you know, we don't care if we throw five or six pitchers in a ball game. We don't care if a guy's going well. He's going to have a limited number of pitches. Okay, so but anyway, Chadwood is kind of a middleish guy. He, he's going to give you. You want him to give you two innings, maybe even a little bit more. As a catcher, does he need to have three or four pitches? Or are you, can he be successful with two? I think he can be successful with one if he can locate his fastball. <laughs> I think that's the key, that everybody tries to have too many pitches. And, you know, no one was a better example of that than Kelvin Escobar. I mean, he had six pitches, but, you know, he didn't really master too many of them. And I think what you have to do, and, and he understands this now, and he, Tyler Chatwood talked about throwing his fastball in his cutter. The biggest thing that people overlook nowadays is location. If you locate your pitches, you can pitch with one pitch in, out, up, down, back and forth, and just change speeds on all those pitches. But these pitchers nowadays are so concerned with velocity and max effort that they forget about pitching and changing speeds and disrupting the timing, go back and forth. So as a catcher, to get back to your question, I'm not concerned about how many pitches Tyler Chatwood throws. I'm concerned about how many quality pitches he can throw with two pitches in many different locations. Based on that, Nate, uh, what, uh, Buck, what has Nate Pearson mastered? He has to master his fastball. And when he came up last year, He got so enamored with the scatter reports and saying, well, you got to pitch this guy up and pitch that guy down and don't throw this guy a fastball and all that. You got to get back to your strengths. This guy throws a hundred miles an hour. If I said to you, and we did this with Jim Clancy when he almost pitched his perfect game against the twins many years ago, I sat down and away for the whole game. The twins knew exactly where we were pitching him and they couldn't hit him. So if Nate Pearson focuses on his fastball down in the zone, elevating occasionally, but not every pitch, he tried to be a pitcher when he's a power guy and he tried to be too fine here. Let me tell you something. This is really interesting. And I'm glad you brought it up, John Clayton Kershaw, Justin Verlander, Max Scherzer. It took Scherzer 
five years in the big leagues to be Max Scherzer. It took Verlander four years in the big leagues to be Verlander. And it took Clayton Kershaw three years in the big leagues to be Clayton Kershaw. Now, mind you, and these are Hall of Fame pitchers. We are asking these kids to come up from AAA and win 15 games when they can't even uh, get through five innings. So I think we have to be a little more patient and we have to give them the freedom to pitch in the middle of the plate. Mm. Hitting is very difficult. We have made it seem to be impossible to get anybody out because yeah. of all the scouting reports. Mm. Throw it down the middle and take your chances. <laughs> well said. Uh, quickly, we want to take a break, but uh, Ross Stripling, starter, reliever, where do you see him? He's a swing guy for me right now. He's that guy that can pitch you four innings uh, out of the bullpen, or if you need a spot start, he can spot start. But right now, for me, I don't see him as a fifth starter. I see him as a swing guy, long, a long reliever. Uh, let's take a quick break. We'll come back with more. Uh, one of the voices of the Blue Jays, Buck Martinez, with us on the podcast. We are back. Buck Martinez is with us. Yours truly, Bob McCowan, John Shannon uh, as well. I want to talk about, you know, we spent a lot of time and we will continue to spend a lot of time focused on this still young Blue Jays team that may be coming into its own. And when I say coming into its own, um, maybe a team that uh, can contend for a, a World Series. Certainly uh, the aspirations are for them to be a playoff team. But in the midst of this, and you alluded to it a little bit earlier, Buck, uh, this organization has built a farm system that is um, quite prolific. It uh, There are lots of pieces coming. And we, uh, well, maybe not us, but the general fan looks at the 25-man roster and makes us evaluations and what they should do, shouldn't do, based primarily on that. But you've got to look at a year from now, two years from now, and what's coming. And you've got to make sure that you have positional holes as well as the economic flexibility to be able to accommodate that and two guys that got a lot of ink and um we haven't spent hardly any time talking about it, at least john and i haven't austin martin jordan groshans how good can these guys be well it's really hard for me to say i have not seen austin martin in person um, of course, he got drafted last year. They got him to the uh, alternate site, and he, he worked on And he's a, a very good athlete. I've watched him on video playing at Vanderbilt. And he's an athletic kid. He can play the infield. He can play center field. He can play first base. He runs well. And he looks like he's got some pop. Jordan Groshans, I have seen in person take batting practice. He's a big kid. He, he's kind of like a Troy Tulewiski type of body, a guy that uh, projects to be a good hitter. And, you know, he's dealt with injuries early in his career. He had plantar fasciitis that's really knocked him down. And yep. uh, that foot injury appears to be fine. He's in camp now. But uh, those are guys that uh, they are penciling in. One thing, excuse me, as I lose my... That's okay. Just, just slide it back in there. There you go. <laughs> One thing that Pat Gillick did that I thought was genius... He would go around the room in spring training and say, Bob, John, give me your lineup this year. Give me your lineup in five years. What's your lineup going to be in 10 years? And that's brilliant because it gives you an idea of who we can project to be everyday players and where we have to fill our needs down the road. And this is how you build a sustainable organization, which this group of Blue Jays front office personnel is doing. 
now, you know, they talk about, you know, Groshans and Klopfenstein and Eric Bardino and Austin Martin, and, and there are more players coming. Or Elvis Martinez, Otto Lopez. These guys are pretty interesting position players. And that's the way it was when I arrived with the Blue Jays in 81. There were players everywhere. Not only was it Bell, Barfield, and Mosby, but it was Tony Fernandez, and it was Dave Steve coming on, and it was more and more pitchers all the time, more position players. And, you know, Willie Upshaw was just on the verge of establishing himself. And, and the Blue Jays now are in that same position in my mind as they were in the early 80s. And I mm. think it's something that can be sustainable for a long time. You know, prospects are an interesting discussion, um, but it wasn't that long ago that we were talking about the greatest prospect maybe in Blue Jay history making an impact. Uh, and, and we've gone 25 minutes without mentioning Vladdy Guerrero's name. <laughs> uh, have, have expectations changed that much for him? Um, publicly, probably have, because... Uh, He's been overshadowed by Juan Soto and Fernando Tatis Jr. and Eloy Jimenez and some of those other guys that have passed him up so far. But again, 22 years old, you know, mm -hmm. he's a guy that you just got to remember how talented he is and what he has done at times on the major league level. Um, he admitted it. He was out of shape last year and it hurt him. He was embarrassed. He's learned from it. I have seen pictures, of course. I haven't seen him in person. Charlie Montoya raves about his conditioning. But the question is, can he maintain that for the whole season? And, you know, he's going to play every day, so there's a chance he will. But he has the ability to hit um, and do everything we expect him to do. But the big thing for him is he's got to have his body under control. Whether you're playing in the field or you're playing at the plate, I mean, if you're carrying around 35, 40 extra pounds, you're not going to perform. It's just, I mean, like, think about it. If you put a weight vest on and try to go out and play golf, pack it around 40 extra pounds, you're not going to play very well. Mm. And the same thing is true in baseball. And I think uh, he's worked hard this offseason, but now he's got to do it on the field. Do you see him as a first baseman? Do you see him as a third baseman? Is he destined to be a DH uh, inevitably? What do you think? I think he can play first base. Uh, you know, first base, there's a lot of things going on. And Vladdy has a, a pretty high baseball intellect. He understands the game very well. And, you know, you just can't put anybody over at first and have them succeed. I mean, there's a lot of things you got to deal with. How far do I go to my right? When do I toss it to the pitcher? When do I go for a ball? When do I go for the bag? There's a lot more going on at first base than people realize. I don't see him playing third base much this year. He's going to rotate in there as they try to mix and match all of the different position players they have. You've got to figure out how to play Grichik, Telez, Vladdy, Teoscar. You know, those guys all have to move around. And that's why Kevin Vigio becomes so valuable because he's probably going to play the majority of the time at third. But when he's not at third, he can play second. He can play in the outfield. He can play first base. He can do a lot of things to stay in the lineup every day. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. 
Live Boricua. You mentioned uh, Gillick and um, uh, his willingness to get counsel, talk to other people about the game. And I I always thought that was Pat's most unique feature and asset. And and even as a broadcaster, you know, I was involved with the team from 1977 on from, from day one. I can't tell you how many times... I would run into Gillick inside the um, the offices or on the field or whatever. And he almost always would say, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And and he did this, I know, with everybody. And um, whether it was life questions or baseball questions, it was so extraordinary. And obviously, you experienced it as well. Man, he was one of the most unique people I've ever met in baseball because of just what you said. I mean, he was anxious to hear what everybody's opinion was, and then he would take that information and make the decisions he needed to make. Plus, he was always engaged emotionally with his players. I mean, he felt like they were his kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, He released me in 1986, maybe two years too late, should have maybe been a little earlier, but he had tears in his eyes because he had a hard time telling me that they weren't going to bring me back. I mean, that's how engaged he was with his players, and that's how the players uh, felt about him. He was a guy that you didn't want to disappoint, that you didn't want to let down, and Pat Gillick was a very unique person in, in baseball, one of the most special people I've ever met. You know, you bring that up, Buck, and it's interesting. Once you get with a team, uh, you get such tunnel vision about your roster, your, whether it's your 40-man roster or, the, or, or, or your starting lineup, that you lose a little bit of perspective on the rest of the league. So you really do have to ask people. And you're a guy that in addition to the Jays, you've done a lot of other teams and a lot of national broadcasts that, that becoming an asset and learning about the whole league is something that all these man- general managers and managers should be asking for. Absolutely. And I think that's one thing that that created uh, the ability for Pat to succeed. He was a farm director. He was involved in scouting. He used to drive miles and there are tremendous stories. And Bob, you've heard the stories about people jumping in a car with Pat Gillick petrified because he was racing to get to the next game where he might see three and four games a day. And, uh, you know, that's the guy that understands everybody. He knows every player in the game. And he knows what they do, what they can do. And he knows his players better than anybody else. Whitey Herzog had that same uh, ability because he, too, started out as a farm director, started out. I mean, I got traded for a guy in Houston I never heard of. And in 1976, I got traded in 68 for this guy named John Jones, and I thought it was a made-up name. <laughs> so I asked Whitey Herzog in 1975, have you ever heard of a guy named John Jones? He goes, yeah, he was the guy that they traded for you. And he told me the whole story, told me where the guy played in college and everything, and just out of the blue. But that's the ability that these guys have to go back. And, and Bobby Maddock had it, and our, Al Widmar had it, and Jack McKeon had it where they, they had to work at it. And it's, you know, it's just part of the way the game has, uh, has changed. It's certainly evolved. Yeah. Well, but that, that raises the interesting question. Uh, all the guys you mentioned, who of, of course we're all familiar with, are of a different generation, of a different um, philosophical bent. Right. I, do you see any general managers today 
who take even a similar philosophy, if not an identical philosophy, to discussing the game, players, situations, with everybody. Uh, everybody seems to be tight-lipped, tight-minded about it today. Yeah. Or do you disagree? No, no, I don't disagree. I, I think the, the one guy that comes to mind immediately is Dave Dombrowski, who just took over in Philadelphia. Yeah, okay. I mean, and he's been in it forever. I mean, he's told me about being a 21-year-old uh, with the Roland Heeman in Chicago and Bill Veck and Roland Heeman, and he would drive them home at night because maybe they had one or two many cocktails before they were going home. So Dombrowski <laughs> was their driver. So he would uh, listen to these guys talk baseball and took it all in, soak it all in. So, I mean, he's a guy, and, and he was with La Russa in Boston. Now he's with La Russa in Chicago. And I mm -hmm. guarantee you they're sitting down and say, what do you think about this guy? How about that guy? What about oh, yeah. that guy in Philadelphia? And you know what? Sometimes you don't want to engage in a conversation with people because it might expose the fact that you're not as well versed in that topic as they are. And I think that's an issue where, you know, you instead of going out and saying, John, let's talk about this hockey player. Let's talk about that hockey player. I might not ask you about hockey players as much as I would ask you about baseball players. Mm -hmm. If you understand what I'm getting at, it's like, well, I don't want to talk hockey too much, but I'll talk baseball for days with you. Yeah. And I think that's what happens to a lot of these guys. They are so immersed in data that they forget about personalities, character, and what a guy can do with the bases loaded in the ninth inning with two outs. Uh, before we let you go, um, with the season getting ready to start, I don't necessarily want a prediction from you because um, we all have thoughts, and it's really just pulling a, an idea out of the air, to be really honest. But mm -hmm. how good do you think this team can be this year? I know we, we're pretty sure they can be real good within a year, can they be good enough this year? Um, Are there still pieces missing? I, oh, I think absolutely. I think that's the answer. I think they're, Buck they're, already gave us his answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, there there's still pieces missing. I mean, you know, everybody says, well, if Nate Pearson can be Nate Pearson, well, what is Nate Pearson? You know, we don't know. He hasn't won any games in the big leagues yet. Uh, he hasn't pitched on a regular season. He hasn't competed in a World Series. And, and you know, one thing that we haven't talked about that really kind of concerns me is the catching. Everybody raves about the depth of their catching. Danny Jansen has caught a total of 1,400 big league innings. Yep. And when Russell Martin came to the Blue Jays before that great run they had, he had almost 10,000 innings behind the plate. Wow. So there's a there's a traumatic lack of experience behind the plate. And as much as, you know, Alejandro Kirk caught everybody's imagination last year, I was hitting 306 after my first 85 at bats in the big leagues. So don't get excited by short samples. <laughs> <laughs> Beyond the catcher, is who's the who's the odd man out in the outfield? Well, you know, I don't think there's going to be an odd man out. I think there's going to be a rotation, and you're going to have, you have to figure out a way. Um, barring uh, anything short of a trade, those four outfielders are going to play a lot. Yeah. Richard Gurriel, Springer, and Teoscar, and, and you, know, you just have to figure out how to maneuver them. You know, I don't, I don't think there's ever been a manager in the history of baseball that knocks on the GM's door and says, hey, man, I got too many good players. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but you know, you know, the interesting part of that equation is on most teams, if you've got four guys that you would like, you see as starters, outfielders tend to all be pretty good hitters. 
it's it's rare to find a, so. a, a, an outfielder that can't right. hit. Right. You know, that's there for his defense. Um, on most teams, that off day would probably be a DH day for most right. of those outfielders. But I don't see that necessarily happening on this team because you got two guys at first base who you think either got to play or DH. Right. Yeah. No, no question. And, and I got to say, I got to give Rowdy 500 at bats. I mean, I got to find out what he can ah, do. Me right? too. I mean, he's got He's got oh. power like nobody else on this team. And we saw last year in, in uh, short sampling, but Rowdy, I think grew up a lot last year. Uh, the knee injury uh, kind of really slowed him down so he could think about his future. But I want to see Rowdy Telez at the plate every single day. Lefties, righties, it doesn't make any difference because he's got power that nobody else has, and he's one of two left-handed hitters in this lineup. Hey, by the way, McCowan's the president of the Rowdy Telez fan club. So <laughs> you're, you're just you're preaching. You're, you're telling what, him what he wants to hear about. Well, I'm, you know what? He and I went to the same high school. Of course, generations apart, but Rowdy and I went to the same high school. <laughs> what are you trying to say, Martinez? That he somehow learned something from you by well, sitting he, perhaps he in the same on chair the in science class? His, Father never even would have seen me play. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. You know that. Uh, Bucko, we uh, we always enjoy it. It's uh, you're you're a good friend for uh, stopping by uh, and joining us. We thank you very much for that. Uh, continued um, good health, Absolutely. and uh, we'll uh, we'll see you and watch you uh, in the next few weeks as the baseball season gets set to go. Thanks. I Paul. always enjoy being with you, gentlemen. You do a great job, and it's a real joy. Buck Martinez, uh, we remind you that if you uh, if you like the podcast, uh, please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. For Shannon McCowan and for Martinez, uh, I'll see you Friday on the podcast.